There we go. Good evening. Uh, welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. We're happy to have you here on June the 29th, last Wednesday of June, right before the uh, 4th of July holiday. So we hope that you are all doing well today. We hope you've stayed cool and avoided the uh, thunderstorms. I'm telling you, uh, we'll talk about the weather here in just a second, but uh, North Carolina has just been uh, hit with thunderstorms all day today. A lot of severe storms will uh, kind of hit on that as uh, here in just a little bit as we uh, go around the the table and talk about the weather, but uh, welcome to the uh, Carolina Weather Group, the June 29th edition. Uh, we have on uh, Dave Malkoff with us. He is a uh, nat national correspondent for uh, NBC News and the Weather Channel, and uh, Dave's going to be talking to us a little bit about everything tonight, tornadoes in Oklahoma, uh, kind of covering some hurricanes here in the Carolinas, and uh, we'll talk about some of uh, the different events that Dave has uh, talked or has covered uh, in the weather world here in the past several years. So uh, glad to have Dave on joining us tonight. Before we get into our conversation, though, I want to know that I want to let you know that you can uh, follow us along on Twitter. Uh, if you have any questions for our guests tonight, make sure that you tweet this at uh, Carolina Weather Group. And uh, we'll make sure to get those uh, to uh, our guests. It's Carolina WX Group on Twitter. Or you can also find us on Facebook and submit uh, the uh, questions via that way. Uh, we are a live broadcast, so uh, if we see your question pop up, we'll try to get it into uh, the show as quickly as possible. And then if you are uh, listening on the uh, rebroadcast or uh, downloading, downloading the podcast, uh, we'll let Dave uh, share his uh, Twitter handle at the end of the show, and you can uh, direct questions to him via that way as well. Uh, I guess that's about it for the uh, house cleaning uh, portion of the show. Uh, we're going to pass it around to our uh, panelists tonight, let them uh, introduce themselves and kind of talk about the uh, active weather that's going on, especially here in the Carolinas. I think uh, Shay's had a pretty uh, calm day. I don't remember or recall seeing much happening there on the South Carolina coast today. Shay, how's uh, things down in the low country? Yeah, well, um, yeah, we've had, we had a pretty active day yesterday. Today, the, the Cape potential was lower, so we, our storm potential was actually lower. Uh, most of that stayed to our west and to our north, and then uh, flared up a little bit later in the afternoon. So we did have some thunder showers late afternoon, mid to late afternoon. Uh, but I tell you one thing: last night around Savannah, the Savannah, Greater Savannah area in Hilton Head, boy, it really fired off. There's multiple outflow boundaries that collided down in that area and just exploded with energy. There was a lot of lightning. I mean, uh, some some friends of mine said that they just thought it was daytime for about two hours. Uh, Dave Williams from Channel Four. He posted uh, a, a shot of the lightning strikes for a 15-minute span. It was 3,028 strikes. So that, that whole area down there really blew up. Charleston got a little bit of a break today and still seeing a little bit of rain. But at least it's keeping the, the air temps a little bit on the cool side and um, should start to get back into our southerly sea breezing tomorrow. Uh, basically, the southeast right now is just a place where fronts are coming to die. So we've had about two or three fronts lay into our area and just turn into troughs and... Uh, provide a lot of moisture with the heat, so hopefully we'll start to get back to the southerly sea breezes to get, keep the coastline a little bit cooler over the next few days. Back to you, Scotty. So, Shay, uh, the 4th of July coming up, big uh, holiday weekend for everyone along the coastline. How are those ocean temperatures looking? Are they warming up enough that uh, people can enjoy the ocean while they're at the beach? Oh, yeah, they're perfect. It's about 84 degrees, so it's, uh, it's ideal for swimming. Um, you know, they went down to 81 on the last northeast wind that we had, and then back up to 84, maybe even get back up to 85 by the time 4th of July rolls around. So uh, hotter temperatures on the way for sure, 
the Bermuda High building back into the southeast. In fact, I think a lot of the country is getting ready to see some sweltering heat over the next several days from what I've been seeing. Yeah, it definitely looks that way. So let's go up north where uh, it's still warm, hot, and humid, except Peter's not had any thunderstorms the past couple of days. So, Peter, kind of been uh, calm for you. That's uh, kind of a change from the past I couple know, of days. I know, for once. I'm shocked. <laughs> I, I gave them all to you. But uh, I know you've been eating some, so I sent them down. But uh, anyway, yeah, it's been hot and humid up here the last few days, and uh, it's going to continue to be that way the next couple of days and into the holiday weekend. We might have some thunderstorms on Friday maybe, but it's a low chance. And uh, 4th of July doesn't look too bad either. Uh, right now it looks sunny in 87, so can't complain about that. But also tonight is the, uh, I'm about to drop the D word here, uh, the anniversary. <laughs> I had uh, a derecho come through four years ago tonight, did some damage, a lot of lightning and everything like that. So uh, that was fun, but uh, we haven't had one since then. I know there's been a lot of hype the last few weeks about derechos and whatever, but uh, haven't had anything since then. So. What? I thought we had a big one last week. Come on. Man. Oh, I know. <laughs> you know, it's the worst one we've ever had. Well, we're glad. Uh, thank you for sharing the severe weather, but you can have it now. We've we've had our fair share down here. So no, you keep it, it down there. Keep it down there. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go down to uh, Norm. The I mean, uh, Kit, who is uh, in Gastonia tonight. I uh, did get to see Kit last night. I was covering the weather for the Charlotte Motor Speedway, and they had a mascot race. And I didn't know that our own Kit Colin uh, was with uh, UNC Charlotte last night, doing the mascot race at the speedway. So. Uh, I think Norm's changing. So I think we may have him now. Norm or Kit or whoever, what's going on? <laughs> Scotty, I feel like you're giving away a secret. It, it looked like it looked like Mario Karts from from way up in your booth up there. I was like, wow, it looks like it, Mario Karts for these guys. It, it did. I was waiting for the little uh, turtle shells to be shot out or the banana pillin. You know, I was waiting for that to happen, but it didn't. But Kit did finish third last night. So, Kit, tell us about the race and what the weather's been like. I don't know what just happened. I mean, my, my camera went out and everything went black. So that guy right there. Um, but we got uh, – he waved. Um, yeah, it, it was fun yesterday at the racetrack. It was just a little uh, – quick gig that they asked us to do so I was like yeah sure I'll do that um, got to be in the infield for the first time um, as far as weather uh, yesterday was beautiful for the race and uh, it was their whole summer shootout so it was good for that and um, it was funny the guy who sort of over the um, races came and talked to us and he was like we're, we're really hoping that maybe we don't get uh, any any sort of rain come through or anything uh, disrupted. I was like, there won't be. And it's like, there might. And I told him, no, there won't be. <laughs> Trust me on this. <laughs> so that, that was a fun little bit of banter. But today we actually had a little bit of a rain shower come through. It was just off an outflow. It looked like it was going to reach us, but then it died. And now it's in uh, Monroe in a severe thunderstorm. So that's usually how it goes. It always gets worse after it comes over my house. Um, heard a bit of thunder, so that was fun, but other than that, pretty clear skies. That's good. Well, speaking of uh, thunderstorms, I know that James has uh, radar scope pulled up on his computer screen, so I'm going to let James introduce himself and kind of talk about what's going on in his uh, area. Yeah, I think the most interesting weather bit I have for this week is maybe happening right now, and this is exactly what Kit was just talking about. You can see the severe thunderstorm warning for Monroe. Uh, the strong storm, lightning, just about six miles from me, and uh, my wife was hoping to go to an out 
outdoor concert tonight, and I don't think that will be happening. So, uh, yeah, we got a, you know, kind of summertime, late in the evening thunderstorm rolling on through, and if anything, maybe, just maybe it'll be a little bit cooler after it comes on through, because I think, like I've said in the past through Wednesdays, Kid is shaking his head no. Being back on the other end of it, he's telling me it's not well, any Well, see, it... It might be cooler, but it's more humid, so it doesn't feel any better. <laughs> well, that's no good, because my apartment's pushing 80 degrees now. Yeah, so. oh. <laughs> yeah this is mosquito breeding season right now. <laughs> and and then, it's uh, mayfly season. I mean, I don't know how many people get mayflies, but it's around here, like, we're between both the South Fork and the Catawba River, and, like, last night at the gas station at CVS, and just everywhere that had any sort of parking lot lights, it was just hundreds upon hundreds of mayflies. I bet if I went down to the public boat uh, dock that they've got a bunch of uh, lights down there, there would have been millions down there probably, maybe just thousands, but still. I mean, I, I was looking on the terminal Doppler radar and the ground clutter around like uh, the eastern portion of Gaston County was just incredible. Yeah, and uh, James, you and I got to have a little fun last week on, I guess, what was that, Thursday night? Was it Thursday night? Friday yeah, night and you know what, Scotty, I think like looking, at the, looking at North Carolina right now, I think we've got more action happening now than we did when we were in that uh, enhanced chance for severe weather. You know, Raleigh under a severe thunderstorm warning right now. we got storms in the central part of the state. You can even see that outflow boundary uh, pretty clear on radar tonight uh, from Rocky Mount back through Raleigh and up towards Durham. So uh, chances are if you're watching us live in portions of North Carolina tonight, you're probably hearing some rumbles of thunder as well. Definitely, and uh, over towards the uh, Reedsville area, um, Asheboro, uh, Thomasville, places like that, um, severe thunderstorms went through there just a little over an hour ago. Um, our good friend Grant Gilmore shared some pictures on his Twitter feed as well as uh, Tim Buckley showing a lot of damage in that area. So uh, some severe thunderstorms moving through that area. And then today... Uh, in our area where I live, we've had uh, numerous severe thunderstorms affect uh, portions of the foothills. A lot of damage coming out of uh, the Burke County and the Catawba County area. A lot of reports of hail today. Uh, we did have one report that kind of, I don't know, kind of, I didn't want to believe it because I just, I didn't think it was possible. But we got a report of ping pong size hail uh, just outside of uh, downtown Morganton, which is where my office is, and I had seen no such thing. But anyways, the National Weather Service did uh, send out a storm report saying ping pong size hail, so I guess we have to go with that. Uh, also some damage down uh, the Highway 64 corridor. And then Catawba County, I wish Joey was on with us tonight, Catawba County uh, from uh, west to east, just all kinds of uh, damage reports. Uh, throughout Catawba County with uh, large hail and damage and wind. So uh, definitely some uh, severe thunderstorms in the foothills. And currently looking at the radar, uh, we have a uh, strong thunderstorm moving through northern Cleveland County as well as southern Iredale County. And then hopefully uh, we'll be dying down storm-wise for the, uh, the rest of the evening into tomorrow. So uh, we'll have to watch that. So a very active day here in North, uh, North Carolina. South Carolina is kind of... Uh, remains uh, fairly quiet, but as I look at the radar, the upstate of South Carolina is starting to uh, get several storms to form as well, so we'll have to watch that. Um, I do want to say that Ricky Matthews is off tonight. Um, he and Chris Michaels, uh, who has joined us several times, they are throwing out the first pitch at a uh, minor league baseball game up in the Tri-Cities area, so uh, Ricky, excuse me, Ricky doing some baseball action tonight. 
And I think Dave, uh, David Reese said that he may be joining us a little bit late tonight. So uh, David may pop in here in a little bit uh, to join our show. So uh, it's 8.15, so kind of really on time. So I want to bring in our guest tonight, uh, Dave Malkoff, who is with the Weather Channel as well as uh, correspondent for NBC News uh, stationed in Atlanta, Georgia. Dave, how are you doing this evening, and how's the weather been in Atlanta today? I'm doing great. Yesterday it was uh, thunderstorms, but we didn't have much of that. Uh, today we just had sunny skies. We're going to go out to the uh, pool today, but didn't end up doing that. But it is it is great pool weather here in Atlanta. It's it's not too hot, and uh, and not and no lightning. That that's a plus. That's yeah. a plus. We we don't like to see that lightning. Now, as you know, living in the Atlanta area, we can get thunderstorms to develop almost any day of the summertime. So. Oh, absolutely. Any day without storms is a good day. So, uh, Dave, thank you for uh, coming on tonight. Uh, the reason I, I caught up with you is I've seen an episode that uh, you did with the Weather Channel, Tornado Target, and I definitely want to talk about that tonight. Uh, but before we do that, kind of uh, introduce yourself to our uh, listeners and our followers tonight uh, so we uh, all can get accustomed to who uh, Dave Malkoff is. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a, a, t a TV nerd. Uh, I, <laughs> I started doing this in... Uh, I started actually working at a TV station in high school, and I used to go um, after school to the CBS affiliate in Youngstown, Ohio, and run studio camera when they actually had people who did that before they had robots who do that now, and uh, and I would do graphics for the eleven uh, for the five, the six, and the eleven o'clock newscast in Youngstown, Ohio, WKBN, and then uh, throughout college I worked in TV at I uh, at the ABC affiliate in, in Youngstown, the CBS affiliate in Columbus, Ohio, when I was going to school at OSU. And then after college, went to WICD, an NBC affiliate at the time, in Champaign, Illinois. Then to Las Vegas, where I worked at the ABC station, then to San Francisco at Cron. Then to Miami at, um, at WFOR, the CBS O&O, and then I moved to Los Angeles to another CBS O&O, which means owned and operated station, and uh, then uh, then came to the Weather Channel. Oh, actually went to KTLA first. Boy, oh boy. Yeah, went, went to KTLA, went to Iraq with uh, with KTLA, and did all sorts of reporting there, and and uh, won some Emmys along the way, and, uh, and ended up at, at the Weather Channel, where I am a contributor to the Today Show and, and MSNBC and CNBC and all those uh, NBC properties because they actually are part owners of the Weather Channel, if people don't know that. So, so we work primarily for the Weather Channel, and then uh, I'm able to do stuff on the side for, uh, for, for the other networks uh, as, they, as needed. I just pitch stuff to them, and they say, hey, we'd like that on our air as well. Must be nice to be freelance, Dave. Is it true you got started in a in a basement in what 1997, 1998ish with a no. low uh, a low frequency radio station or low power radio station? <laughs> that was that was 1986, I think. Oh, 86. <laughs> okay, well, I've got the wrong material then. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, no. It it was it was a uh, it was a basement radio station, and uh, I can actually I can actually send you a picture of that through Twitter if you wanted to see. And um, yeah, it was it was a. Um, 
it was a radio station that I built out of a transmitter that I found in my dad's dental office. There was actually an intercom that would go around the dental office through the ground of the system, and it would transmit on AM through the ground. But I figured out somehow in, <laughs> in, in my elementary school days that if I pulled the ground out of the cable that was going to the plug, probably not a good thing to do. But if I pulled the ground out that didn't have any power in it, and I extended it up to an Antron 99 antenna on my roof, I could actually transmit to the entire neighborhood on AM radio. So I ended up doing that, and we would do live shots, and and uh, and we would we would through walkie-talkies. I would have the walkie-talkie on one end, and then transmit through that through the radio station. And I would play all the uh, vinyl albums that my stepmom would have down in the basement, and uh, a lot of a lot of tapes like uh, like Beastie Boys and the Ghostbusters soundtrack and uh, and. I don't know, Hall and Oates, things things that would be down in the basement. I would able to, I was able to play through the radio station whenever I had a chance to. It was uh, yeah. Some, I was gonna say uh, it was it was nothing like this, nothing as sophisticated as this. But uh, but kids today have so much more than we ever had. I had to build that all myself. And you probably hear some kids screaming in the background. <laughs> and all of his neighbors are still trying to figure out why none of their microwaves and remote control uh, garage doors opened in the late they 80s. They blew them all out. Yeah. <laughs> all sorts of frequency bleed over everybody. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. that I mean, You started out that way. and I mean, you, you accumulated quite a few nominations, and you got at least six uh, Emmy Awards that, yes. that I can count. Yeah. The six or more, or are we there, still going for them? Yeah, I have six trophies. Yeah, and and, uh, and I'm I'm not sure how many nominations, but that it's uh it's it's really it's really cool to be even nominated for those kind of things, and um and especially you know one one for a my work in Iraq uh, as as a as a correspondent. During the during the war, and then uh, then another one that I'm really proud of is um, I won kind of like best feature reporter in Los Angeles one year. So that was that was really neat because out of everybody in Los Angeles, they're like you, you were the best feature reporter this year out of the tape that you sent for the uh, for for that Emmy nomination. So it's it's those are kind of cool. Nobody in the industry really cares about it, but uh, but your mom loves it, right? That, <laughs> that's what Emmys are. Uh, Dave, going through your accolades and and your career moves, I can't help but over, but but just think about how many different moves that was for you. And uh, we sometimes get folks who watch the show who are students and are looking to get into the field. And I mean, I think that that's a perfect example of when you're trying to get into an industry like this, the steps you might have to take to kind of bounce around and grow your career. Uh, what what type of strain was that on you getting started? Well, I mean, you start off pretty young, and you don't have a family, and you don't have a wife or anything, so so you're you're kind of able to bounce around like that. And if you are willing to make no money when you first start out, and uh, and pretty much throughout, uh, you're 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 moving around. If you're willing to uh, to eat a lot of frozen pizzas, then uh, then you can you can start in whatever market you want. Uh, if you want to start in Champaign, Illinois, on the air, that's that's the way I started. Um, and and markets go all the way down. We're talking uh, when we talk television markets, we're talking about city 
cities that have television stations, at least one that is a local station for that city. And there are 255 different local television markets around the nation. It goes from New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, and then all the way down to Glendive, Montana that actually has a TV station there. And uh, shout out to anybody who's watching in Glendive. But, <laughs> but yeah, they actually have a TV station there. So if you want to do this bad enough, absolutely you can do it. But I, I think it might be actually changing now. You may not have to start in the smallest market in the world. You may be able to, and there's a lot of people who have just worked their way up as somebody working at the desk at, at a network or somebody working as an associate producer at a network and then, then working their way on the air. I'm not exactly sure how that works, but it seems like that is uh, one of the ways to go that didn't exist because the industry has changed a lot since I started in it in, uh, in the mid-90s. You do a lot of reporting on science and technology, and it seems like if you were to be born at any point in history, this is probably the point for you to be born. I mean, this oh, yeah. is such a tech age we're in. I'm looking around your <laughs> office behind you. You've got so much stuff there. Oh yeah, yeah, well, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> some of this, some of this stuff. That's funny. Yeah, some of this stuff is uh, is just kind of an archive, and I could show you some some of these things. Hold on one second. I got to pull my earphones out. But this thing over here. <laughs> this is. And this is how, how geeky I actually am. This is from the 80s, and it is actually a video switcher. This thing is, is, uh, is from Radio Shack, and, um, and you were able to actually plug video and audio through RCA cables into it. And you could do video effects from one VCR, one VHS VCR to another one. And this is how I got started doing video production, was this piece of equipment. is fantastic. It was called an... Archer Special Effects Switcher, model number 15-1274 that you could get from, and I don't think it has a date on it. You could probably look it up on eBay. But yeah, it's, it, yeah there's all sorts of archive material in here, and, and to think that you know, I was doing everything on VHS back in, in, my, in my early days, and then, uh, then now you can, you know, you can have stacks and stacks of VHS tapes, and I used to have those, and I used to travel around with these boxes. I had more boxes of VHS tapes than I actually had clothes, and now it can go on a little hard drive like that. All of your VHS tapes like that. It's, it's, it's amazing, and sometimes I pull that kind of stuff. What do you got there? I was going to say, I was going to help you drive your point home. Here's an HDMI splitter. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, does the same yeah. thing. You can punch between multiple sources and... Looks so incredible, <laughs> and that thing costs you, it costs you twenty five dollars on for the record, just right, for the exactly. record that that piece of equipment is probably a decade older than I am. No, this thing. Oh my goodness, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah, there goes Kit driving the point home there. <laughs> That's what I'm here James, for. James, James, I think you have found a new best friend here. This is pretty. I cool. know. Dave's gonna come on every week. We're just gonna talk tech. Is that okay with everybody? Yeah, we we could. I I've actually got a um, I I use an HDMI splitter, but for an for an evil reason actually. Um, there there is uh, I've got I've got a um under here I've got my um, I've got my cable box. I've got an extra cable box and then a Hapage, um, video encoder, which is a uh, what is what is it called? 
um, HD PVR, the Hapage HD PVR. But the thing is, sometimes when you when you get video through, and this is very geeky, sometimes when you get video through the HDMI cable, it comes with a bit of DRM, which is copyright protection. So when I when I want to when I want to record things off of TV, now this is always stuff that I've I've put out, like if I want to record my Oklahoma show, sometimes it won't allow me to do that, even though it's my show that I've done. So, um, so I found out that if you get one of these um, cheap uh, HDMI splitters, um, sometimes they will, by some sort of magic, strip the DRM out of the HDMI thing, so you can actually record off a TV. But I, I don't, not like I'm recording movies or anything because that would take too long. But, um, but if I want to record off my DVR, which I do all the time, I did this morning actually. Um, I actually use that HDMI splitter for that. And now NBC is probably going to come to your house and confiscate all of your recordings. <laughs> I'm going to pop it up on the screen again. Here's a picture that Dave tweeted out just a few minutes ago of the reverse angle. This is what he's looking at yeah. at his command post. Oh, my goodness. Look, look at all that junk on there. Actually, that um, that uh, power source that you see, that that, um, that surge protector, it, it, it has been constantly running since 1994. So that has been on. That's why some of those power lights are flickering there. It has been constantly running since since I got my first IBM compatible computer as they called them back in the day and uh, and that was 1994 so that's just a bit of geeky history there as well. They don't make stuff the way they used to. No, but I, I hear, I, hear uh, I, I may have to change that up because um, I hear that search protectors actually have a shelf life on them because after a while they don't actually work. So this thing is probably just a, just as good as as any extension cord that would have multiple outlets on it. So it doesn't actually do any surge protection. So maybe I might want to rethink that. Well, talking of technology, let's uh, kind of talk about the reporting side of that. I mean, uh, as you've reported news and weather throughout the past several years, how's technology? changed as you're out in the field reporting and, and getting your story out to, to the mass audiences. You know, when, when I first started out, if you were going to do a live shot out in the field, you would need a big satellite truck. And uh, and sometimes you still do. If, if I was going to go out to a major hurricane in North Carolina and it's coming on the beach in the Outer Banks, that's what we would need. We need a big satellite truck with its own big pipeline going up in the sky with with you're creating your own bandwidth um, and these are big powerful dishes on top of these uh, satellite trucks and you park it on the other side of the hotel so you don't have as much wind on there and you can point that right up at a geosynchronous satellite and that's how you used to do it there used to be no other way of doing that kind of live shot but now we've got technology called a live view or DeGero and uh, and these things are basically backpack satellite trucks what they do is they take several different uh, cell phones and uh, and squish them all into one big 
pipe of bandwidth. So they're taking cell phone modems, six of them or so, and uh, and then they'll they'll split up the bandwidth between all of those. So you have your hotspots, but it's using all the hotspots from AT&T, from Verizon, from T-Mobile. All these different towers are all pushing out this one signal, and it works pretty well. So you see a lot of people using those out in the field. So that makes it a lot easier to do live shots out in the field now. I guess I should um, mute myself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was gonna. I was gonna say I may be getting ready to steal James's thunder. Uh, but talk to us about uh, the uh, Facebook Live now and uh, um, Periscope, play, things like that. How has that to really change the uh, the the broadcasting of news now? I mean, you know, normally we'd have to wait for a special report for NBC or your segment to come on to the Weather Channel. But now you can do Periscope or Facebook Live or, or whatever the case may be, and your audience can see it then and there as it's going on. Yeah, I mean, we, we can use it as a promotional tool, and we have a lot of times. And then if we're out in the field and something is actually happening, um, it's it's kind of hard for me to do it when, there, when there's uh, something actually happening because if there's if I'm in the middle of a storm, I'm doing about 12 hours of constant live shots. So it feels like if you're just watching the Weather Channel that I'm on the air every hour or every half an hour. But I'm actually on the air constantly because I have a, I, I keep on getting, I have, a, I have this uh, waterproof phone now, but I keep on getting uh, messages that will say, coming up next, you have... MSNBC, and then coming up after that, you'll have WNBC, and then after that, it's Miami Station, and then after that, it's the Weather Channel again. So basically, every couple of minutes, we get a maybe a minute breather between these live shots. So for us in the field, we don't use um, Facebook Live as much as as we do because as much as you would think we do for live events because we just don't have the time with the traditional live shots that we're doing. But there are big events like uh, like when there was that protest on the floor of the of the of Congress last week and the uh, Speaker of the House has the discretion to turn off the C-SPAN cameras, and he actually did that. And you saw a lot of the congressmen and women uh, doing that, having uh, Facebook Live and having Periscope down there, and that's how they actually broadcast out of the uh, out of the, the floor was they had these phones on them that were able to do these live shots. But um, but for us, it's it's very difficult to, um, to keep updated on uh, big news events, big weather events when we're out there because we're just constantly inundated with people who want live shots from us. Dave, is that is that just you in general or, or most all the, the Weather Channel journalists out in the field uh, or the reporters out in the field, are they going through the same process as you with different networks or, or are there some that are just dedicated to the Weather Channel that get breaks in between or, or do you get a break? No, no, I... I, I when it's big weather coverage, no, you don't really get a break. It, it's it's a uh, it's it's just we we have our nose to the grind and we have to just keep on doing that weather coverage. Um, even if it's the build up to a weather event, um, like we were just in uh, Myrtle Beach and we were doing the tropical storm Bonnie coverage, which turned out to really be not much of a storm, but it was the build up 
and we still, I still did 12 hours of live shots. We were um, on three shows, three or four shows on MSNBC, and um, we, I'm sure we had some other ones as well, plus the Weather Channel every 20 minutes or so. So they we constantly came to us over and over again. I think we had three different crews around there, and then Mike Seidel was out there, and he'll, he would... I think he was doing uh, live shots for NBC Nightly News, and so he had that responsibility, which comes with uh, putting a whole story together. So somebody has to be writing that story back where they have um, all the video from all around the country, and then someone in Miami will actually cut that piece together for NBC Nightly News and then feed that up to New York. So it's a it's it's really going when you see Mike Seidel doing his story, you'll see him doing the story in North Carolina. Somebody in Miami is cutting it. Someone from New York is cutting it. It's all becoming one story on, on Nightly. So I, I guess it's safe, safe to say um, when you're getting ready to go to bed, you were completely wore out. I mean, that's just nonstop reporting 12 hours straight, uh, dealing with hurricanes and stuff like that. Uh, I would say you're you're probably worn out and don't want to talk to anybody for a while. <laughs> <laughs> probably you just want to go to sleep. Yeah, I, I uh, my my longest live show or my longest period of live shots was while I was working in Miami actually um, for WFOR the CBS ONO down there and um, it was 42 and a half hours for one shift. <laughs> that, that was quite wild and uh, what what happened was I have no idea what hurricane that was Wilma or something and I know that we were in Key West and um, we kept on doing all these uh, all these live shots over and over again and I, at the end of the live shots uh, CBS Newspath called me and said can you be the Newspath reporter and what Newspath is it's a division of the network that actually sends reporters out to just do stories for the local stations. So the local stations can appear that they have a, uh, a local reporter there, um, but it's actually from CBS Newspath, so, so it helps out the local stations so they don't have to send someone out. The network is sending those people out, and, and they didn't have anybody to send, so they drafted me into that at the end of my shift, and at the end of all of that became 42 and a half hours of live shots. So I've been doing this for quite a long time, these kind of marathon live shots for, for hurricanes. And those were wild down there in Key West. Well, while, while we're talking about that, let's talk about some of the events that you've covered. I mean, you've been, uh, like you said, Wilma, uh, Hurricane Katrina, the South Carolina floods. Talk to us a little bit about some of those events, the ones that maybe stick out in your mind and, and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I think um, the way that I explain it is that I, I've, I've done pretty much every hurricane that you've heard of because I was in Miami between uh, 2003 and 2007, and in those years, you guys know th those are those are the very very active years um, for Florida, especially um, for Katrina. I don't know if anyone else did this, but just as a matter of luck, I got sent out to um, to the Bahamas to cover something called Tropical Storm Katrina, and I think I actually have it somewhere over here. I have my notes in a poster, and I. Uh, I can't find it. I thought it was down here. Um, yeah, I had I had I have my notes in a uh, in a frame, and I'm not sure exactly where it is. But um, I had to write 
real big on the top of that note, Tropical Storm Katrina, because I was afraid I would forget the name of Katrina, because there had been so many this year, that year, and there were so many before that, and I figured, well, here comes another one, this Katrina one, and I'll never remember that name, and then so I had to write really big on the top of my notes, Tropical Storm Katrina, and I got sent to the Bahamas, and then it came through the Bahamas and actually shut down the Miami airport as a Category 1, I believe, as it came through, and it wrecked my neighborhood when I was living in Doral, and then uh, then it went all the way to uh, you know Wave Waveland, Mississippi, where it came on shore and uh, and broke the you know the, the you know the rest of the story. But I ended up um, following it from the Bahamas all the way to the Lower Ninth Ward. So I, I don't know if anybody else has has followed that storm from that entire trajectory. So as much as you can, I, I followed that storm in, in, in Wilma and Rita and and uh, and Juno or, or the the two that went through uh, Jupiter, Florida. Um, that was oh I, I forgot what those two were, but they they were Gene and Francis. Gene and Francis. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> they they um those two almost followed the exact same path. Through Jupiter it was really really weird and and uh, and we we did a we did a lot of coverage on those and so it's it's a it's a lot of hard work. I remember one time it was either one of those Gene or Francis that um, we were doing live shots and um, for the CBS morning show um, and it was it was I believe it was called the the early show at the time and um, so we we're doing so so many constant live shots for that newscast. That um, our camera started malfunctioning, and um, even though it was taped up and there were plastic bags all around the camera, it would s slowly stop losing its functions. Like now it won't zoom, and now it won't focus, and now <laughs> now it doesn't record. And then we kept on doing it until it literally stopped working, and we ended up doing live shots with a uh, handy cam. And we had we had a um, like a uh, just just a, a not a professional camera, but we were able to plug it into the live truck doing that. And it appears like you're at a TV station there, so so you you know how how that how that works. Uh, you, but you you just do whatever you whatever you can to get the live shots on the air. So that, so that's what we're doing. It's very very grassroots. If you think it, you it, these shows look big and flashy, but it's very, very grassroots. Maybe even more grassroots than, than than this podcast here. When when you're out in the field, you are dealing with the elements and and trying to bubble gum and and duct tape anything together to get a live shot on the air. And maybe talk to us a little bit about some of the. I know you're covering co covering Hurricane Katrina, but. Uh, talk to us about some of the stories there. You know, that's something we've really not touched on on this show, and hopefully, uh, as the anniversary of Katrina comes up, maybe we can hit on that. But uh, uh, talk to us a little bit about what what you saw there. I mean, because um, I'm sure just what we saw on TV wasn't exactly everything that was going on in New Orleans at the time, or or even along the Gulf Coast anywhere. Yeah, I mean, we started off in in uh, we drove to Waveland, Mississippi, and uh, and when we got there. Um, just as an aside, I had one of the first um, 
handheld GPS units that was actually built into a uh, Palm Pilot. And these Garmin units were built in a Palm Pilot. Nobody really knew about these at the time, but we were driving through there and everything was wiped out in Waveland, Mississippi. You've got to understand that that's, this is where the storm came on shore. And I had never seen anything like this before. There wasn't really any debris to speak of. It looked like someone had taken a razor blade and just sliced these houses off of their foundation. It was very breathtaking to see. And talk to the folks who were in a parking lot getting the supplies that were coming from the Miami-Dade uh, uh, Fire Department and, and other agencies around Miami that trucked all that stuff over there. That's the story that we were doing. And uh, it was it was really tough to see. And I, I found, I remember finding a woman who was, who was living in Waveland at the time, and I say, can we go and see what your house looked like? And she said, there is no house. There is no way to get there because there is no house. I couldn't even tell you where it is. And I said, what, what is your address? And she said, listen, there is no house. And I said, but what is your address? We have this GPS thing that I can plug your address into and we can drive over there. And she had never even heard of this because it was one of the first units back there in, in 2005. And, um, and we were able to plug her, her address into there and just look at the slab of concrete that was once her home with her child living in there. And, and that, that was really, really tough to see those folks, not to mention the folks that, that we saw in the lower ninth ward who was, were just in really, really bad shape. We had to go there in a uh, in a two and a half ton truck, um, one of those deuce and a half uh, vehicles that the that the National Guard drive around in, and we had helicopters above, and we saw um, I saw a body tied to a tree, which was very very shocking to see, and and it's just, I mean animals who didn't have their owners and and people who were stranded in their homes, and uh, it, it was it was just so widespread throughout the region. It was really, really uh, scary to think that that could happen in a major American city in this decade or last decade. How long How long was you in New Orleans or the Gulf there to cover the event? Uh, I was probably there probably a couple weeks, I guess. And we, we lived, again, it's, it's a very grassroots effort to do this kind of reporting because um, I brought as many MREs as I could bring. Uh, we stopped by the grocery store and got, and got as much food as we could. But that was what we had to survive on. And we ended up sleeping in the car because there were no hotel rooms available. And, uh, and we slept on the car in, in, we slept in the car in Jackson Square. And I actually had a... Um, I, I went back a few years later when, when I got to the Weather Channel and found that parking space where we, where we parked. And I remember one night uh, waking up in Jackson Square, and that's, that's right near the river, and smelling this horrible smell of, of death. And, uh, and I, had to, I had to go down to the river and figure out what this was, and I thought I was going to see human body. But it was a dead shark that had, that had come up the uh, the river from the ocean from from the from the uh, mouth of the Mississippi somehow the shark had gotten into the uh, the brackish water there in the Mississippi and was able to make its way all the way up to Jackson Square where it finally was able to you know, couldn't go any further but the, yeah it was, there was a lot of weird stuff like that happening 
at the time in, in, in Katrina. So some of these stories you, you never forget. And I, I take I take a lot of pictures, you know, um, during these events and, and I, I try to keep a group of 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 pictures. Hold on, let me let me find it. And you said that shark was in Jackson Square, like the one in uh, New Orleans. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Here is here I, I, is. A, I think I even have a picture of that shark. Is there is there a way to put? Um, I haven't really used um, uh, yeah, hangouts so, before. Is there is there a way is there a way to post a picture? If you look on the side of your screen, there should be a little green. Uh, a green rectangle with an arrow on it, and it says screen share. Oh, okay, yeah. And you can click on that and find the window you're in. Hmm, that's weird. For some reason, it is acting up. Well, see, see if you can see this, because it says uh, it says Flickr is down for some reason. But but you said you said there's where's a screen share? Yes. Yeah, so uh, in the window of um. The hangout should be. Oh, screen share. Screen share. One down. Okay. Yeah. Um, share your screen. It doesn't seem to be working. That's okay. You can you can tweet it as well, and one of us will pick it up and we can put it on screen for you. Yeah. Yeah. See 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 if you can see this. I'm having trouble pulling that up, and then um, but I could I could put it, I could definitely put it. Dave, I'm actually on your Flickr right now, and I can pop it up on the screen. And I suspect this is the GPS unit you were just talking about. Oh no, that, that's that's something that's something else. That was uh, that's, oh, okay. that's a GPS unit that guy's using in in a uh, in a documentary that we're working on right now about um, about uh, about hang gliding. Oh. Yeah. So um, so that that one that this one is, is actually. Right Yes, that's it. That's it. Can you see it? Uh, I'll pop that up. So, yep, yeah. here it comes. So that's that's the that's the dead shark that was that was in the river. And it was it was really, really terrible to see that. And um and this this was the this was the vehicle a few few pictures back that was, you can see the vehicle that's marked T V and that's that's the vehicle that we were like one, two, three, four pictures back, you'll be able to see that that's the vehicle that that we uh, had to sleep in, and so that was our hotel room in uh, in Katrina, and uh, and we found a found a bunch of great memorable stories. And when when you when you arrive at something like that, there's there's the car. I see that. And when you arrive at something like that, um, and you can see we actually had gas taped to the to the roof. Because there were no gas stations, so yeah, I was going to ask you. You know, you're running all this power, you're doing all these things, but you know, how do you? Uh, you assume all the gas stations are closed. Yeah, so, I mean, <laughs> you can you can see a couple pictures back from that. That's the uh, that's the peak satellite truck, which is a uh, satellite truck that the CBS network had uh, had actually. Yeah, there it is. That that's the peak satellite truck that the CBS network had. Uh, purchased for that event, that they, they it's kind of like a freelance satellite truck that you can get, and these these things are everywhere all across the country. Still, there's a huge demand for satellite trucks because they do create their own bandwidth, and there's there's nothing like it in the world uh, right now, even with cell phones or anything. There's nothing like having your own bandwidth because if you're using something like a Live View that's using a cell phone signal, you're competing with everybody else who's using not only that unit but using their cell phones and so so it's public Wi-Fi it's public bandwidth versus 
you know your own private pipe to the sky with that satellite truck. That's why that's why you still got to use those kind of things. But uh, but yeah, they, it's it's yeah you can actually see that that GPS unit in a few pictures after that, and uh, and that one is the is the original GPS unit that actually had a pop out antenna, and it took a while to pick up. There it is. It took a while to pick up uh, any signal. So so, but it was it was a lifesaver in Katrina, and it was cutting edge technology at the time because we were able to find people's homes that did not exist anymore and tell their stories through their eyes in a way that they weren't even able to tell their stories because they didn't even know specifically where their homes were because there was no there were no street signs, there were no trees, there were no mailboxes, there was nothing for these folks to go back to. That was one of the most devastating stories that we've ever done. Wow. So um, speaking of storms, uh, you also covered the October flooding here in South Carolina. What uh, we went through first week first few days of October of this past year. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about that, your experience. I mean I was here in Charleston and uh, so several of us meteorologists were, were watching the system and documenting it and uh, you know taking notes on everything that was going on throughout the day. I, I don't think I slept the whole time. But uh, tell me some of your experience, what you saw, because I didn't get to go to the mid-state, to Columbia, where the rivers yeah. were swelling and the flooding was happening and some of the, the more uh, the wilder things were going on. So, uh, yeah, tell us about it. I'm, I'm not a meteorologist, but but I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that that is one of the most significant rainfall events in modern history. There was uh, there was so much rain coming down there that it just inundated the state, starting with a bunch of different systems. Uh, there, there was there was a uh, it was a, a tropical storm or, or Hurricane Joaquin that was off the coast that was pushing all of this through, and then there was another system coming from inland, and those things met up to create a catastrophe that had never been seen before in South Carolina. Um, because they, they had all this water dumped in one time and there was no way for that water to go away and all it had was a chance to go down the river and as it was going down the river it was just creating more flooding so at one point uh, there was a huge percentage of the state that was underwater. Uh, we went to, I think we started there in Columbia with Nikki Haley uh, doing uh, doing her press conferences there and, uh, and then we moved on to Charleston and then I think we came back to Columbia because I remember there was one family in Columbia and their um, home was was underwater but they didn't even know about it so they, they, uh, there was a, there was a father and his wife and three kids I believe in the house and it, he came out he got out of bed at around five o'clock or so and um, I forgot why because maybe his, his alarm inside his house was going off so he got out of bed and as he got out of bed, he put his feet into about three feet of standing water in his bedroom. Had no idea that there was a flooding happening at the time. And he got out, and uh, they tried to get everybody up and out of the house. But the doors would not open because of the pressure of the water outside the house. So the only way to get out is they have to lift the uh, the window in the daughter's bedroom and everybody had to jump out of there into three or five feet of standing water and swim to the street 
where it was the house kind of went down in a dip, and they had to swim to the street. The people on the other side of the street were not flooded at all, but these families were completely flooded out, and uh, and they in once the water recedes, they have to go through everything, and they have to take uh, into account everything that was in their house, everything that was destroyed, that some of the homes have to go down to studs at that point because of the intrusion of water causing mold. And so it's it's your house is destroyed when it gets flooded. And a lot of times you have problems with um, flooding insurance and, and maybe it might might cover this or not cover that, but it's, it's very difficult. But they do have a lot of insurance help there on the ground as soon as these events happen. But it, it is a lot of paperwork to go through for a lot of these folks and, and they have to show up at a at a place where they can get FEMA help. And it's, it's really, really tough to come back from something like that like that um, flooding, hurricanes, uh, a lot of water damage and wind damage to homes. It's, it's very, very scary for a lot of people. Yeah, Dave, I'm playing the uh, the loop from it right oh, now. Oh, yeah, you water, can see those two systems, right? It's uh, really, really intense. Let me uh, pull one more up for that. And it's just impressive, even this mosaic loop. Just Look at that. Look at the moisture. entire state. And you've got two systems eating each other. And, uh, and those two systems are, are really, really pounding South Carolina specifically. It looks like, look at that. It looks like it's just over South Carolina at yeah. one point. Yeah, and, that's, the, that's just, the upper low wrapping around on that last, uh, the last couple of frames there. But, uh, yeah, that, it was super, super intense. I mean, it, it just goes on and on. You know, you can see even on, th this is the, the more high-resolution one, but the, the outbreak of rain from an upper low, Joaquin, a cold front boundary, and then we also had high pressure to the north that was wedging. You can see that little wedge up top up there um, that was pulling down a, a, north, a strong northeast wind. So we actually had onshore, we had flooding not only from the coast but from the rain and the river swelling. And, you know, this is this is only halfway over at this point. Yes, yeah. And then here comes the fire hose, and it just wow. it nonstop, and it... <laughs> I, just re I remember sitting incredible. through that, and it was, it was crazy. There were... There were um, Parts of the uh, Columbia River is it the Columbia River that that were that were breaching some of the some of the uh, levees on the Columbia River were breaching and, uh, and that was right next to one of the treatment plants for the water so that was the intake for the uh, for for the water that for that area of Columbia and uh, and if if it was to breach in a certain way it would cut off all the water for all of that area of Columbia and they were they were the uh, Army Corps of Engineers was putting a grand effort into making sure that that wasn't going to happen at one point launching Chinook helicopters and dropping these giant bags of rocks and sand into these breaches so they could shore that up for the time being and and uh, in Relieve some of the pressure, so that so that actually wouldn't breach into the water treatment plan and have uh, just w river water. They don't want river water breaching into the water treatment plan. They want treated water going through there, and that, that would be very very devastating. I see. You're, I think I think you're playing a a, a story about a um a breach right there. Is is that the event you were talking about, or, or something similar? This is this is actually this is actually a a, a a dam that was about 20 minutes away from that first dam that I was talking about. So we were having several breaches, and that one we were doing a live shot at 
maybe at 5 a.m. or so, and we heard about that other one happening, and we said, hey, we got to go. So that's one of the things that you can do with these live views is, uh, is you can jump out of one area and jump into another as fast as, as you can grab the camera into the truck and, uh, and, and scramble over there, and we were able to establish a live shot from the other area and show that live that that uh, dam was actually not going to breach, but the, but the one that we were standing at had already breached. But uh, but there was a lot of concern because the uh, the local officials in that area had said there is an imminent da a danger of this dam breaching and overflowing and it was right in the middle of a big neighborhood a a, uh, a neighborhood with with a lot of people living in there. Right. Yeah. They. Um, I don't know if I'm still on screen share or not. It seems like a, a, yeah, I, I see that. I couldn't stop it. Um, so I may need may need Kit or someone to to get me off screen share in here in a second, but. You can see the dams here in Columbia, and these were forced. These were forced breaches, so they had to open. Some had, some of them hadn't been opened in almost 40 years. Yeah. So if they if they hadn't done that, it would have overflowed the banks, and they wouldn't have been able to control the water at that point. But there were there were a lot of homes down here near Charleston on the Edisto River and other other places that were flooded over, and people were you know what? Why did this happen? He said, Hey, you know, you live along the riverbank. This is apt to happen. And that's uh, you know you were told that some time ago, and, and so they had to do forced flooding. And you know, if you if you live along those flood prone areas, you're just kind of out of luck. And yeah, that that relieves the pressure on on those on those dams. And some people say, you know, uh, that that they were having problems um, getting flood insurance in that area because that's what they were telling us that they were having a problem getting flood insurance because. They say that the insurance company, and this is this is just what I'm hearing from from the people on the ground, that they were saying that the insurance company says that you're not in a floodplain, but nevertheless their home is flooded, and and they couldn't get the flood insurance because they weren't in a floodplain, and that, that was that was that was an additional scary thing for folks in the homes. Now they've gotten out of their home, they're safe, their family is dry, and they and they have something to eat and somewhere to sleep. But um, but on top of that, they're dealing with um, this bureaucracy that that's really tough for them as well. Well, my, uh, Dave, let's uh, talk a little bit about um, something that you just completed working uh, on, and that was the tornado target uh, special from uh, out in Oklahoma. Uh, talk to us a little bit about um, your experience. What all you put into that show uh, that you guys just got uh, finished up with, and uh, kind of talk to us about what you what you learned out there. Yeah, we're working on um, some some long form shows at the Weather Channel uh, where we're trying to produce these things in house, and instead of getting a big production company from outside producing these things like and and uh, and some of these are the top rated shows on the network. So so there's a lot of interest in them. The one that that um, the first one we did was about Alaska, and uh, and climate change in Alaska, which was a it is a fantastic trip. We spent 11 days on the ground in Alaska, and, and you, you can you can see that online as as well as the um, Oklahoma um, tornado target story. And actually, I believe I'm not exactly sure when that is airing, but I, I can I can find that out in just a bit and, and post it online. Um, but Dave, the, is this the, the Alaska story? Alaska is sinking. Yes. Yeah. There there is there is um this is a, a woman named Ruth Macchione. And um, she lives in a house in near Fairbanks, and it's uh, just outside of Fairbanks. And um, her house 
Uh, 80% of Alaska, I believe, sits on something called permafrost, and permafrost is a mixture of soil and ice, and some of this ice goes back 40, 50, 60,000 years, even longer than this. Um, this ice has, has, been, has been solid for tens of thousands of years, and in some cases longer than that, but, um, but as Alaska warms, some of that ice starts to thaw, and as that ice starts to thaw, homes and roads start to sink into the ground, so we went to Ruth Macchiona's home, and then we went to a thing called the uh, permafrost tunnel that the Army Corps of Engineers is bored into the side of the permafrost and you can go down into it and see what is happening from a lower level um, 60 or 70 feet below the ground and you can see what this permafrost actually looks like if you bore a tunnel into the, uh, the ground and you can see that this is the world's freezer and what it does is it stores old carbon inside the ground. And when you think about carbon, we're talking about uh, woolly mammoth are made of carbon, and we're talking about old forests, they are made of carbon, but there are all these dead animals and plants that are stuck in the freezer, and some of these woolly mammoth have soft tissue on them inside the ground. They are so frozen that they are inside this, uh, it's almost like Jurassic Park, stuck inside this permafrost. And there are pieces of, of a, we, saw, we saw a guy with, with a whole warehouse full of woolly mammoth tusks, and they were doing some study with the soft tissue inside. It was just blowing my mind to, to look in, in, a, in, in a warehouse full of tusks that they found in the permafrost. And um, we've, we also went down into the tunnel and I saw a stick that looked like a stick that you would see in your backyard. And um, this stick was 40,000 years old. It wasn't a petrified stick. It was a stick made of wood, but it was in this freezer, so it was 40,000 years old. So as this starts to thaw out, you unplug the freezer. And what happens when your freezer unplugs? Well, your meat starts to go bad. And when meat starts to go bad, it the, uh, the, the, the bugs will get into it, and, and they release methane. From, from the meat and from the bones and from the wood that's in this. This methane is natural carbon that has been stuck in the ground for tens of thousands of years. And as it is released into the air, it creates a localized warming. So this, so this thawing is happening because of global warming and global climate change, but there is a localized warning, warming happening because of this natural carbon that is stuck in the ground. And carbon dioxide is not as good a, um, a greenhouse gas as methane. Methane is actually a better greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. It holds more energy in the atmosphere, so it's actually more dangerous than carbon dioxide. And all this methane is coming out of the ground, and you can see all that on the on the uh, Alaska uh, State of Emergency special on the Weather Channel. Wow, that's well, fascinating. Maybe we can, maybe we can interest. Uh, Steven Spielberg in a new movie called The Pleistocene Park. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pleistocene Park. Yeah, that's that's right. That's a good one. Yeah, um, and and uh, I 
I, do, I don't know what what kind of what kind of experiments they were doing with the uh, with the soft tissue, but it's I don't know <laughs> they're trying to reanimate anything. But there was um so and we did we showed this on the Today Show. Uh, we I showed a um there were boreholes in the side of the ice where they had found frozen bacteria that they were able to reanimate that was stuck in the permafrost there. And I asked the guy, I, sa I said, um, at, the, at the end of the story, I was saying, um, wow. is there permafrost on Mars? And he goes, yes, there is. And I go, could you reanimate the bacteria in the permafrost on Mars? And he said, that's exactly the experiment that they were working on when they did that to try and see if they were able to get into the permafrost on Mars if or, or ice on Mars that we now know exists. Um, could they actually reanimate some bacteria, some alien bacteria there? So you get into really really cool stuff when you get into these uh, these stories and, and all it takes is just scratching the surface in Alaska and trying to get the Army Corps of Engineers to let you into that project so that was really really neat and that was that was the first special we did before we did the Oklahoma City uh, or Oklahoma special about about tornadoes and how much of a target Oklahoma actually is it is it is a target out there so kind of talk about you know, I know you went out with the the KFOR your, uh, storm team out there. Yes, uh, do you know those guys? Some, I do know some <laughs> of them. Yeah. Uh, so talk to us about that. Uh, the people that you spoke with in Oklahoma. I mean, uh, I know several people in the Moore and Norman area, and uh, it seems like the town of Moore. I, I know you stated it in your show, and I can't remember, but Moore, Oklahoma, seems to have been hit several times. You know, at least ten, fifteen times. So talk to us. Uh, a little bit about uh, all that uh, that you do learned out in Oklahoma. Oklahoma is right behind Texas when it comes to uh, the number of hurricanes that come through. Um, and if you if you actually look um, to the history books from the 1890s up until now, there have been at least 160 tornadoes that happened just within the Oklahoma City metro area. We're not talking about the entire state. We're talking about just the metro area of Oklahoma City. So that's basically more than one per year that they would get um, throughout the Oklahoma City metro area, 160 tornadoes. And two of those were some of the most violent tornadoes ever recorded in history. And those were the more tornadoes that happened uh, in May 3rd, 1999, and then May 20th, 2013. And those were deadly, deadly, violent tornadoes that uh, were huge and very different tornadoes, but they but they happened in the same area, and we actually stood on a spot inside a, a guy's uh, sod farm where those two tornadoes converged. Uh, they, they actually um, crossed right there in that sod farm, so, they, so it's very unlucky. It's probably the most unlucky spot in the entire state of Oklahoma if you stand on that spot, but it is far outside of Moore, I believe. Um, it's I'm not sure how many. It might be a mile or two from the from from the center of Moore, but um, but those those tornadoes came right through the city. And um, in when I was there in uh, in 2013, that's I wasn't there for 99. But I was there for the 2013 tornado just a day after that happened, and um, it was just devastation as far as the eye can see because if you think of more it's a it's a it's not 
it's not a rural area in, in any sense of the word. It is a major metropolitan area in a major city in America, and there's a lot of people, and there were two two elementary schools that were hit along with two daycares. We lost seven little kids in that May 20th tornado. And, uh, and that's that's just the really tough part of the story to deal with because because you're thinking of schools as a place that should be safe for kids to go. But the thinking was before the uh, the May 20th tornado in 2013 is that tornadoes don't come through until after the school day. But there's been a lot of change in the atmosphere, which means that. Um, that you can't tell, you can't say that for certain anymore that uh, tornadoes don't come at this time or that time. They can come at any time of the year and they can come at any time of the day. So now there's been a mandate to um, any new constructed school in Moore actually has a shelter built into it. And that's just in the city of Moore. That's not true for the rest of the state. There are a lot of schools all over Oklahoma, the state and Texas and Kansas that do not have shelters built into them. But when they build these shelters that cost um, about a million dollars or so, um, I, be I believe that's, that's the price. I'd have to look it up. But, um, but these shelters, when they're built to FEMA rating, um, they don't, they're not like a shelter that you go down into the ground to go into. Uh, they are just school hallways. And, but they are built in such a way that, um, that they can withstand an EF4 tornado. Now, this May 20th tornado was an EF5, but they are rated, FEMA rated for an EF4 tornado. So what would happen is you have all the kindergartners in there and uh, maybe the first graders in that hallway anyways. But if there is a severe thunderstorm warning or a tornado coming right for you, they would gather everybody throughout the school and push them into that hallway and into those classrooms where they would be safer than they would in any other spot that they would be in that school. So that's a that's a positive thing that a lot of people have stepped up in more in particular and said, this is enough of this nonsense. We're going to build shelters in our schools. And we're going to have that, something that uh, that a lot of schools did not have at the time. And that's one positive thing that's come out of uh, all these tornadoes and, uh, and especially the more tornado, May 20th, 2013. So Dave, um, the, I read that you did a documentary on why so many tornadoes are, are occurring in Oklahoma. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, um, well, I mean, you, I'm, I'm not a meteorologist, but you'd probably be able to tell me uh, more about it. But but um, but you have this this uh, this golf this golf moisture coming up, and you have the Rocky Mountains right there where the um, the cooler air comes through, and and you have that convergence, and that's what creates this tornado alley. And there's a little bit of a dip of elevation, just a just a small jut of elevation right. Um, west of, of Moore that, uh, and Oklahoma City that um, Dr. Greg Forbes was saying that actually creates, you know, a little bit of, of a, um, that creates a little bit of a uh, mini tornado alley right there. Hold on a second. It sort of funnels in that cold air that adds in that, in, in that right location for that. Yeah, yeah. And Dave, you brought up Dr. Greg Forbes. We've had him on our show. Um, 
How much has he kind of played into this, kind of letting you know, because you, know, you said you're, you're not a meteorologist, so how much did he help you uh, get the show prepared and give you information? And then I also want to ask you, uh, I mentioned it just a little bit uh, earlier, they, working with KFOR, that uh, here in the Carolinas, that's, I don't think people in the United States outside of the Oklahoma City area, maybe Dallas, Texas area, yeah. realize how much the TV meteorologist plays a factor uh, in storm coverage out there. I mean, it seems like a Damon Lane and, and Gary England and uh, uh, all of them out there in, in Oklahoma City are almost like heroes out there. I mean, people really think highly of the, the meteorologists out in Oklahoma. Uh, and I know you got to experience a little bit working with KFR. Kind of talk to us uh, about uh, how they approach uh, approach the storm season, and then uh, I know we're well past nine o'clock, so we can continue talking as long as you want to. But I don't want to <laughs> keep you too long. So yeah, I think I think we've got screaming kids up there still who are supposed <laughs> to go to bed at, at seven thirty. But I can tell you, we talked to Mike, and we talked to uh, we talked to um, oh, uh, I think you got Lacey. Lacey. Yeah, Lacey's. yeah. We 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 talked we talked to a bunch of those. Folks who are, who are meteorologists, and they are really superheroes. The folks who cover uh, tornadoes, and 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 there's there's a guy named John who's in the helicopter, and he uh, flies around. Uh, it looks like he's right on top of the tornadoes when he's when he's in his helicopter, but they're about a mile or two away from the tornado, and they stay very far ahead of it. So, um, and then. Um, and so, so when when they um, when they cover these tornadoes, they're they're not only covering it from the sky, but they're covering it from the ground, and they're covering it from from all their units that they send out around, and they've got their own radar. So yeah, they, those those local meteorologists are, are fantastic, and that's why we did the segment on them to show. Like this is one part of the story that nobody outside of Oklahoma knows about. That the that the local meteorologists who are out there in the field are truly lifesavers, and they're really really helping out with this coverage. And it's just going to get better as the technology improves. There is an experiment that they'll start doing next uh, tornado season, where they actually have rockets. That you can shoot into a tornado, and it would it would bring back telemetry to you of exactly what was happening inside. There's almost like a bottle rocket that you shoot into the tornado, and, and these uh, the, these folks at OU are working on this technology right now, and they, they believe that they may be able to deploy it next year because you can't deploy a UAV or, or a drone into a tornado. There's just too much wind, but if you are in, and it's it's actually less regulation to, um, to fire a, a non-guided missile into into a, a tornado then there is to uh, to fly a um, a drone near a tornado so so you you actually run into less FAA regulation and that's that's what the folks at the at the advanced radar Institute at, at OU are, are counting on that they can actually shoot these uh, these little tiny bottle rockets but they have this telemetry that can can be really life-saving that can come back and they can instantly tell you what's actually happening inside that tornado especially if it's rain wrapped and you can't see it they'll be able to actually tell you what, what's going on in there and with that that's comment you have now merged both my love for weather and rockets. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> I was getting ready. Getting ready to say, 
I'm tweeting this out on the Carolina Weather Group right now. That is why you watch our show, because you get breaking news just like that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out when this when this show's going to air, and I know I have it right here. And uh, give me one second. Um, here it is. So, um, and I, I could I could probably post this on Twitter if, if people want to see it. But um, uh, what is the date today? 29th. Oh, this 29th. So, so it actually aired yesterday at midnight. But um, on the 17th, um, Oklahoma Tornado Target will air again at 11 p.m. That's the next airing. And um, on the 24th, the Alaska State of Emergency will air at 4.30 p.m. And then uh, we're, we're also working on a story that we're trying to get done here that we've been working on for the past month or so about a guy who's, who's, um, who's trying to break the world record for uh, hang gliding. And, um, and th that's, that's another special that, that we're working on. They're probably trying to put it on for next month. But, uh, but the, the guy hasn't the, broken the record yet, but we're hoping that uh, he'll break the record in the next few days and then we'll be able to actually have this, this complete special on. Yeah, that sounds like down your alley, Shay. You might could help out a little bit with that. <laughs> you know, you know, uh, North Carolina is is famous for for hang gliding off the dunes, and that that's how the Wright brothers got got started. Was was with you know trying to get these these gliders. And there's was a powered glider off of the dunes and actually have some some powered flight there. But actually, uh, if you go to this spot in Texas right along the Mexican border called Zapata, it is actually better. Then the Outer Banks are, or Kitty Hawk, or or Kill Devil Hills, and uh, and you can you can take off from there. And let, let me just let me just without anybody googling, what do you think? Just just go around it and tell me what do you think is the maximum distance you can go in a non-powered hang glider? Just in a hang glider, what do you think is the maximum distance you can go? Maximum distance, uh, depending on your thermals, I guess. Fifteen. As long as as long as the daytime is... I'm going to guess 1,500. No. How many <laughs> miles? 1,500. Man. Uh, in your area, I would say 300 miles. And then anybody else? I was going to say 100, and I thought I was high, so I don't know if I say anything. Are, are we saying yeah. like 1,500 feet like for gliding distance or yes, the furthest? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Furthest travel um, in in a in in just non-powered flight, you take off and you just keep on going. How far can you go? I was gonna say 25 miles, but I feel like yeah. that's really low. That's what that's what everyone thought. I thought like maybe two miles. The answer is 475 miles. That is the current wow. record. What you do is, and you mentioned the thermals. What you do is you climb up to the top of the thermal to the cloud level. And you look for the next thermal, and you jump off of that cloud level at about 10,000 feet or so, and and you you just glide to the next thermal. And the uh, the descent ratio is at the top. If you're at if you're at 10,000 feet, you can go about uh, 20 times that far, so 200,000 feet forward. So if if you if you do get up to ten thousand feet, or if you get up to three thousand feet, you just multiply that by twenty. So for every foot you descend, you go twenty feet forward, because uh, because these things are so well built with carbon fiber and and uh, and the the really really lightweight material that they have for these high performance gliders. And there's only about maybe twenty thousand people around the world who have 
ever done hang gliding. And and the people who do it professionally are just maybe five or six. Uh, so so it's mm-hmm. it's a it's a it's a very very tough sport. But uh, but when you're as good as at it as this guy Johnny Durand is, and uh, and the current record holder, uh, whose name is is Dustin, and uh, and when when you're as good as Dustin and Johnny. Um, you can you can go as far as the the wind and sun will take you, as far as long as you find the thermals, which are these rising columns of air in the sky, and 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 you can see them because you can see either dust devils on the ground or birds going up in a circle, or you can see a, a cumulus cloud on top of these thermals that they're creating. So every time you see a cumulus cloud out there, you can know that there is rising hot air underneath it, and that's your next. Escalator in the sky to get to. So that's a really interesting special that, that we're working on. We're trying to get it on for the. That's pretty season. neat. You know, you ought to look into um, paramotoring as well. That's a, that's kind of an up and coming sport. And there's some kiteboarders too that have learned how to ride these thermals off of cliffs with just the kites. But I tell you what, that's a that's a very dangerous thing to do because the kites are not designed for that kind of uh, of lift mechanism. So they're they're on a downward descent the whole time. They just learn how to loop the kite. And uh, ride the thermals out, but you know, you'd have to have—you almost have to have ideal conditions, especially here on, on the South Carolina coast. There's a few of these paramotorists, and they have to go at certain times. They just know in the daytime it's going to be too dangerous. There's going to be too much downdrafting along the sea breeze front inland. There's going to be—they uh, can ride the, the dry line at the coast as long as that stays uh, relatively safe for the thermal lifting in that area, but. Uh, yeah, that's that's pretty fascinating. So paramotoring as well, if you check that out, that you might find some pretty fascinating things. Those guys go for hundreds of miles too. They go through the uh, not Himalayas, but uh, parts of the Alps. Oh yeah, through. sure, yeah. This this guy this guy Johnny Duran has has done that as well. He's an Australian guy and and uh, and he he does it through. Um, he's from Brisbane or from outside Brisbane, and he's done it through through the Alps, and he's done it through. Um, through uh, in the in the Carolinas, there there's a spot in San Bernardino, California, that's really popular for this. But um, but the most prime location on Earth is this place called Zapata, Texas, which is right over the border from Mexico, and uh, and and it's got all that. It's got enough Gulf moisture, and it's got enough uh, hot air on the ground, and and uh, in the desert atmosphere, kind of heats up, and it and it pushes these thermals up, and it creates the perfect conditions. You can't, they don't think you can go further anywhere else on the planet than than starting off at the airport in Zapata, Texas. Makes total sense. Yeah. That's pretty cool. All right, well, we're closing in on 9:30. So, uh, any of our panelists, we have any more questions before we kind of wrap up the show? I'd I've, I've got one, long. and I'll let Dave keep the answer as short as he wants, depending on how much time he's got. But uh, looking around your office and getting to know you over the course of the last hour and looking at some of your reporting on YouTube, how excited are you with drones? Oh, yeah, they just changed the regulations this they week. They did, so. like 51 yeah. days and counting now. Yeah, so so in August, the rules will change that, um, that basically – if you're over 16 years old, if your drone is under uh, 50 pounds or so, uh, you can fly it for commercial use. Now, before that, you could fly it however you want, just not near an airport, not not over 300 feet, and uh, and you could do any kind of hobby nonsense you want to do and goof around and get nice Facebook videos, but what the real game changer is for us, and we've used them a bunch of times, but the thing is, there is so much regulation. You have to have a pilot set out a flight 
Um, it, it just, just I'm going to be in this GPS location tomorrow, and it has to be 24 hours in advance. But now we can use it for breaking news. We can use it to explain things better than you can ex ever explain it, and uh, it's it's going to be a real game changer because you can do it uh, much easier now, as long as you've got the uh, the license from the FAA, which will be a a simple simple process to get versus what it has been, and we've been waiting for this for a long time. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm right there, anxiously waiting with you. Yeah, it should be it should be really neat. It's uh, I mean we've you you you'll see in the Oklahoma uh, City special that we did we did a uh, oh this this is actually a live shot that we did and we actually had to have a pilot there with us to do this legally and uh, and I was on the phone here and we went up during that huge snowstorm in Philly. And uh, that winter storm, Jonas, and we were able to show as we go up here. You're you're able to see uh, Strawberry Mountain, which is a, or I think I think it's called Strawberry Mountain. That's a, that's a um, a neighborhood right outside of Philly. And you see the high school there, and you can see how much snow is on the roofs there. And that was a huge problem because we went out to a neighborhood in Philly where a church had collapsed because of the weight of snow on the roof, and uh, that's a real problem. And you can't report that kind of thing unless you have a drone in the sky or a helicopter and a lot of times since we're going to all different cities we're not a local station we don't have a helicopter available but if we have a drone we can go up and survey that kind of potential danger and, uh, and that, that potential danger actually came to a head at that church in, in outside of Philly and, uh, and, and we had we had a collapse there and it was very very lucky that nobody was in that church at the time very cool. I'm gonna have to get me a drone. I'm I'm, I'm waiting. It's too neat. Long. It's neat. It's neat. <laughs> I, I I went to the drone convention in in Las Vegas and and, uh, and it was it was very cool. And there's another there's a shop here in town in Atlanta called the uh, Atlanta Hobby. And uh, and if you if you do if you go into there and you see the kind of drones that they're building in there, you can't leave that building going. Yeah, I have no interest in this. <laughs> it's impossible. Maybe right, they guys. can. Maybe they can fix mine. I need a new stabilizer. But I did. But I did do. A, I did do the hang glider in San Bernardino, and it was really like being inside a drone because you're not in an aircraft in in any way, shape, or form. You don't even have to hold onto the bar because you're carabinered into it in a pouch, and so you're just kind of floating out there, and it was like you were inside a drone. So it was really, really incredible. I wish I didn't have to work and and while I was doing it because I wish I could have taken more of it in. It was it's it's a really neat sport. All right, guys. Anybody else have any uh, last questions for uh, for Dave before we uh, sign off for uh, tonight's show? Yep. Thank you, Dave, for coming on tonight. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, we appreciate it, Dave. I want to give you the opportunity to uh, share your social media accounts so our followers and uh, uh, listeners of the podcast can uh, follow you on social media. Yeah, you can you can find all my social media links at at, at www.davemalkoff.com. M A L K O F F. You can also uh, follow me on Twitter at Malkoff and on Facebook slash Dave News. So those are those are the two ways to get a hold of me. Uh, but if you if you want to if you want to see my 
Facebook or Flickr or anything like that. It's and and uh, and YouTube and uh, LinkedIn or whatever, uh, IMDb page, whatever. Um, that's all. That's all available through DaveBalkoff.com, and you can see all those links, those social links there. Awesome. Well, Dave, we hope it's not an active hurricane season. Hopefully, uh, you don't have to be. Uh, going out doing uh, all kinds of reporting 20-some hours straight. But if so, we expect you to come back on and kind of talk about it. Once We're happy to do it if, we, if, we, if it comes down to it. <laughs> all right, Dave. Well, thanks so much. Uh, we appreciate you being on tonight. Sorry we kept you so late, but it was a great show, and uh, look forward to having you back on at some point. <laughs> all right. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was really great being with you, Scotty, and everybody else. No problem. Thanks so much. And next week, uh, we're talking with the Weather Pros. Uh, they are a consultant meteorologist. And the following week, a big show, July the 13th, we're going to be joined by the Weather Junkies, another podcast um, based out of Colorado and Connecticut. Uh, they're going to be joining us, and we're going to be talking about uh, all kinds of stuff in the weather enterprise. And after that, we are uh, open. So if you have any ideas... Uh, any shows you might want to see us do or any guests that you would like for us to have on the show, uh, please feel free to uh, send us a tweet or a Facebook message, and we'll, uh, we'll get on that and see what we can do. So we all, all hope you have a great weekend. Uh, stay cool out there, and we hope you have a great 4th of July and a safe one, and we'll see you next Wednesday night.